Fibromyalgia, it's real and you can treat it. We'll prove it to you on this episode. Welcome to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Watto. On this episode, I won't be joined by my normal co-hosts, Dr. Tony Sideri and Dr. Stuart Brigham. They were on call at Cashlack Memorial, so they weren't around for this interview. But I had a great conversation with our guest, Dr. Daniel Claw. Dr. Claw is a professor of anesthesiology, medicine, and psychiatry from the University of Michigan. He attended undergrad and medical school at Michigan and then did his internal medicine residency and rheumatology fellowships at Georgetown University, where he eventually held roles including the chief of rheumatology and the vice chair of medicine. While at Georgetown, he assembled an interdisciplinary team who began to study the central nervous system system contributions to a number of chronic pain disorders, including fibromyalgia, interstitial cystitis, low back pain, and Gulf War illnesses. This group of investigators, the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center, moved to the University of Michigan in 2002. Dr. Claw remains very active in institutional and departmental translational research training programs and is very active and recognized as a mentor of clinical and translational researchers. Many of his mentees are producing research aimed at helping better understand how to best diagnose and treat acute and chronic pain. Dr. Claw now has over 300 peer-reviewed publications and has been the PI of more than $100 million in federal grants. Needless to say, we are thrilled to have him on the show today. We made a connection over Skype, so some of the audio is a little bit choppy in spots, but I feel the content is really good, and I wanted to get it out to you guys. So rather than spend 100 hours on editing, um, I'm just going to ask you guys to deal with some of those spots. On this episode, we get really deep into chronic pain and fibromyalgia, going through in part one, the diagnosis the epidemiology, the pathophysiology of chronic pain. Part two is more geared towards the actual treatment, both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic therapies that are available. I think there's a lot of great clinical pearls in here for our listeners. I think you guys are going to love the episode. So without further ado, here's Dr. Claw. Hi, Dr. Claw. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. You've done lots of research in chronic pain, and I've I've heard you say that you have a very high pain threshold, and it doesn't seem like you have chronic pain yourself. So how did you get so interested in this topic of all topics? Well, I'm trained as a rheumatologist, and uh, even though almost all of what rheumatologists see uh, is chronic pain, or at least people present with chronic pain, I was always sort of fascinated by how little we understood about the underlying mechanism of pain. And I saw a lot of patients with fibromyalgia during my rheumatology fellowship. And although the people that were mentoring me didn't know what the pathophysiology was, they actually believed it to be a real entity. And I thought it was just a fascinating condition. So I um, began uh, working in fibromyalgia pretty early in my career. And, uh, you know, that's that's great that the people you were working with believed in it because I, I had mentioned to you in pre-recording there that 
I really, uh, until the past few years, knew very little about this until I was kind of thrown into the fire as a primary care doctor uh, and sort of like realizing that I did not know enough about this. And, and the topic of fibromyalgia had been almost like a taboo subject when I was in medical school and residency. So I didn't even know if I should talk to patients about it. And that's not uncommon. It, uh, we've learned a lot about fibromyalgia just in the last 10, 15 years or so, and the medical knowledge in the general medical community has not caught up yet. A lot of the advances in fibromyalgia and even more broadly in chronic pain could only occur after the advent of research techniques like functional neuroimaging and uh, chemical structural neuroimaging. So that really has been a boon to neuroscience research in general, but also pain research uh, more particularly. And I definitely want to talk about your research a little later on, but before we get into some of that stuff, I, I just wanted to ask you, um, what what sort of habits or skills do you think you, you had to allow you to get so heavily involved and be so successful as a researcher? I think uh, I, I'm naturally inquisitive. I think that's one of the reasons that I went into rheumatology. Rheumatology sees a lot of the patients that other people uh, can't really figure out what's wrong with them, um, but yet it's still a subspecialty that sees, that looks at the entire body, uh, and that was one of the things I really enjoyed about rheumatology, and in fact, one of the things that led me early in my career to start to recognize this fibromyalgia phenotype, if you will, not just in people who we diagnosed in fibromyalgia, but in people with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and osteoarthritis that, that would have this symptom profile in addition to an autoimmune disease, uh, uh, that was pretty compelling to me and, uh, and, and quite fascinating as to what the underlying mechanism or mechanisms was for that underlying problem. Yes, and I, and I definitely want to ask you more about that. So I, at this point, I want to move into sort of the meat of the talk here. So just to get it out of the way, uh, we've we, we kind of been skirting around the topic. So fibromyalgia, should we be telling patients they have it? Is it real? Is it going to harm them if we tell them they have fibromyalgia? I always tell practitioners that they should use whatever term they feel most comfortable with. So if they don't like the term fibromyalgia, I understand why they might not like it um, just because of some historical issues with fibromyalgia. So I don't try too hard to get providers to use the term fibromyalgia, I do um, get them to try to understand the underlying mechanisms and, and most importantly, understand what's going on in that person's body, what that person's brain, and how you can most effectively help that person with both uh, drug and non-drug treatment. And I know that you were involved recently in writing a, a white paper sort of talking about this this issue of chronic pain and how we're not doing as well as we could be with it. And uh, I think that had talked about maybe calling it something different that's a little bit more intuitive for, for people. Well, we will all often use the term centralized pain when we're talking about fibromyalgia, just so that people understand that this type of pain seems to be coming either entirely or largely from the central nervous system, because that is really the most important thing for providers to understand is that the, the, the way that most people learned about pain uh, and the, the way that acute pain most oftenly presents is what we would call nociceptive pain. There's something 
wrong out in the uh, peripheral tissues, some damage or inflammation out in the peripheral tissues that activates nociceptors out in the peripheral tissues that sends a signal down the sensory nerves, which eventually propagates all the way up through the spinal cord up into the brain to be felt as pain. And, uh, and that's uh, nociceptive pain or peripheral pain. Um, a second mechanism of pain, which most practitioners are familiar with, but is not statistically um, as common, um, is neuropathic pain. But then the third mechanism is really what I'm going to be talking about uh, and what, what fibromyalgia is a poster child for, and that's centralized pain, pain where the pain seems to be becoming more so from the brain. It's more of a pain amplification or volume control problem um, in the central nervous system than it is a problem in the area or areas of the body where the person's experiencing pain. And the most important thing about that is that the the drug and the non-drug treatments that work well for nociceptive pain, um, NSAIDs, opioids, injections, surgical procedures, don't work at all for centralized pain. So it really is important to be able to recognize this type of pain, whatever you want to call it, um, and understand that it's not going to respond to those classic you know, NSAID, opioid, uh, surgery, injection treatments, and instead you're going to have to use drugs that work in the central nervous system and more aggressively use non-drug therapies like exercise, cognitive behavioral therapies uh, to try to treat that kind of pain. And and you say it here, it sounds so intuitive and, and practical, but I, uh, I, I see patients in my practice and uh, I, I forgot to mention to you uh, before we were starting to talk that my actual employer, uh, it, there would be too much red tape if I use their real name. So we just call the hospital that I work at Cashlack Memorial Hospital, uh, pun intended on the Cashlack. And uh, so at Cashlack, I've seen lots of patients. They have they carry the diagnosis of fibromyalgia, yet they've had both knees done, both shoulders done, both ankles done. They've had carpal tunnel surgery on both wrists. And that it's kind of led me to think, and, and they're still coming to me for pre-ops for further surgeries. It's very hard to convince them they don't need it. And I just wonder if surgeons should be helping us intervene here. Absolutely. And some of the work we've done in the last couple of years, I, I think has been uh, quite impactful, at least in the surgeons and anesthesiologists that see the data and, and hear um, some of this work presented because we've shown that if you if you use the um, new 2011 uh, survey criteria for fibromyalgia, which which basically can be scored from zero to 31, and uh, zero to 19 of the items are how many sites people have pain in their body, and uh, and and so you're really looking for how multifocal the pain or how widespread the pain is. Obviously, if the pain is occurring because of a volume control problem in the brain, then it could be in any area of the body, and it's not likely to be just in one or two locations in the body. The other part of that questionnaire um, asks about other central nervous system symptoms that, that co-occur with centralized pain, like fatigue, sleep problems, and memory problems. And what we've shown in some recent studies is that um, that's that uh, scale goes from 0 to 31. 13 is said to be um, the cut point for saying that a person has fibromyalgia. But what really is striking is that for each one-point increase in that scale from 0 to 31, people get 
less responsive to opioids that are given in the immediate perioperative period in individuals that are getting either their knee or hip replaced, and they're far less likely to get better with respect to their knee or hip pain after arthroplasty, um, the higher the score is. And this extends well below the threshold of that score that we would use to say someone has fibromyalgia. So this really seems to be like a, a trait of individuals, an observable trait of individuals. And if you, as a practitioner, get used to looking for this symptom pattern, multifocal pain with, with um, fatigue, memory problems, sleep disturbances, you'll start to see people with sub-threshold fibromyalgia all the time. It's a, this is just incredibly common. And the, the more rapidly you start to pick up on the fact that that's what the underlying problem is, um, a, a really low dose of a tricyclic drug at bedtime and, and an exercise program might uh, really do a great job in treating that individual's symptoms. And I think one of the problems with fibromyalgia, quite frankly, is that by, by the time people get to a score that would lead them to be diagnosed with fibromyalgia, this disease has usually been going on 15, 20, 25 years and either has been untreated or maltreated. And so I think that a lot of what we see with these fibromyalgia patients that none of us can make better um, is, is an illness that has gone untreated for 20 or 30 years. And that, you know, if you don't treat someone's diabetes for 20 or 30 years or you don't treat their rheumatoid arthritis for 20 or 30 years, it's really hard to reverse that um, if you finally start treating it at some much later point in time. And I think that's one of the fundamental messages I have about this concept and about fibromyalgia is when you see that fibromyalgia patient, it's almost as if um, it's too late. When, when that pain is so widespread and it's been going on 15, 20, 25 years and all the psychological and behavioral comorbidities have mm. settled in, um, you sh that person should have been uh, treated for this problem, whatever you want to call it, when they began to, to develop symptoms in their teens or their 20s. And and I think uh, the the patients that kind of intimidate physicians are probably the ones that they no one caught this early. They're coming in. They're already on narcotics. They might be on benzos for sleep or Ambien, and they're 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 unhappy. They have comorbid uh, psychiatric illnesses by that point, and and these these patients scare physicians. I mean, we we feel bad for these patients, and they make us feel like failures sometimes because it, they're very difficult to treat. Well, those patients scare me too. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't say that. I, uh, I mean, there's some people like that that we can make quite a bit better. But what what often really happens with those people that leads to them to be very difficult to treat and frustrating to treat is they give up. But they've been beaten down by our system. They've had a lot of unnecessary um, surgery and injections. They, uh, if they've been put on opioids or if they have gone on disability, those are two incredibly negative prognostic factors for this spectrum of illness. But, um, but, that, but there's a lot of those people out there. there and um, I, one of the things that I try to teach residents and fellows, and I, and I, I think this holds true for anyone taking care of these types of patients, is that when you encounter a patient that's given up and they're not willing to do exercise or cognitive behavioral therapy and they don't want to try any different drugs, it, there's nothing wrong with you telling that person that 
maybe you're not the right doctor for them because you're not going to just give them an opioid or you're not going to um, sit there and listen to them complain about how bad they feel when they're not willing to do anything themselves to make uh, their situation better. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not something that I enjoy doing, but it's something that you have to do or else those three or four patients in your practice will suck the life out of you and, and, and won't allow you to have the empathy and the wherewithal to take care of all the other patients that have this problem that in fact do want to get better. And if you explain this to them and, and they begin to understand the role they need to play in the types of drugs and non-drug therapies that are going to work, then, then a lot of these people can get quite a bit better. But, but it's, it's just um, harder and harder. The longer they've had this, the, the behavioral psychological factors really get fairly firmly um, entrenched. And that is, is a big part of what makes these people really difficult to treat. So getting our, our listeners to, to help them diagnose this early, uh, the, the 2011 criteria you were referring to are the ones that use the, the widespread pain index and the symptom severity score. And those are, those are things you can just Google search that document and, and print out the PDF and give it to your patients. And essentially you can diagnose them that way. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I wrote a review article on fibromyalgia in JAMA in uh, 2014, and it has a it's a a nice review. I think in a lot of ways, uh, not the least of which is it's got a table, a comprehensive table that has lists all the evidence based drug and non drug therapies and gives people suggestions and hints about what dose to start the drugs on and how to slowly increase them. But um, that article also has a really nice tear-out version of the 2011 criteria. It was meant by JAMA uh, made it so that people could pull it out, make copies of it, um, administer it in clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And I would really highly recommend uh, when you're seeing a chronic pain patient to give that to them because it really will tell you a great deal about what the underlying mechanism or mechanisms are in that person's pain. If they score... Uh, again, don't be looking for the people that score really, really high that that meet criteria for fibromyalgia because you don't need a questionnaire to identify those people. They smack you upside right. the head when you walk in the exam room. But it's really good at helping identify the sort of sub-syndromal fibromyalgia, the people that wouldn't quite meet criteria. But those are probably the people that are most responsive to treatment because they haven't moved so far down the continuum that they've really become unresponsive to a lot of the treatments we would otherwise use. And, and the way that I, I've kind of moved to, you, you can sort of get a flavor for patients when you, when you meet them, you think, okay, maybe this person has fibromyalgia, but really probably what you mean like by that is they have a chronic pain syndrome. There's probably some central centralization to this disease and intervening early is really, uh, is really important. And, when you're when you're following these people, uh, are you repeating that questionnaire and seeing if the score changes? Is that a validated way to kind of assess, or do you look at a different marker for how they're doing on treatment? I do follow that measure, but what I more so follow when I'm following people longitudinally is some measure of functional status because that's really what we're aiming for when we're treating chronic pain patients is we're trying to get them to 
improve and increase their function. We, we actually don't like having chronic pain patients uh, attend too closely to their pain levels. If you have pain patients attend too closely to their pain levels, that's not as effective with, with respect to a lot of the cognitive behavioral approaches and rehab approaches as to explain to them as what you need them to do is continue to try to slowly increase their function. Um, and, and as they get slowly better, whether it's a drug or a non-drug therapy that you use to get them better, that their responsibility is to try to slowly um, begin to do things that they stopped doing as their pain was getting worse, start moving more, getting more active, maybe even doing very, very mild, light exercise, something like walking. Uh, but uh, one of the important things about using exercise to treat chronic pain, which can be extremely effective, is that you have to start at a really low level of it. And for most chronic pain patients, the best thing to do is talk to them about increasing their activity rather than actually doing exercise because most chronic pain patients are so sedentary that if you use the word exercise, they look at you like you're stupid. But if you, if you instead say, you know, you need, to, you need to get up every hour and walk for five or 10 minutes, you need to uh, developing a walking program where you begin walking uh, 10 minutes a day, and then you go to 11 minutes, and then you go to 12 minutes, but uh, you you have to um, become more active and then finally get into sort of some daily light exercise. Uh, people, Anyone can do that, um, but you, you really have to be quite insistent with your patients that that's an important part of their overall therapy, um, as as is um, getting a good night's sleep, uh, trying to reduce stress, some of the other kinds of things that we focus on in the behavioral programs. I think that, I think we're starting to get, people are starting to get the message, at least, uh, down here in San Antonio that they need to be active and that I I've taken on that same practice of telling them you need to be active. Uh, I think one good thing about this Fitbit, uh, pedometer craze that's going on right now is that a lot of the patients can easily say, okay, I'm going to try to go for, you know, I want to eventually get to 10,000 steps a day, but you you can tell a patient with uh, a chronic pain syndrome, if you walk 10,000 steps, you're going to feel wiped out for a few days. So maybe just start at a thousand or 2000 steps. And that, I think those are, I think we're starting to get, uh, get good results there. One of the analogies I use for patients is that I actually view exercise is a drug uh, to uh-huh. treat th- this spectrum of illness. And there's a lot of evidence that it actually is probably working, at least in part, the same way as tricyclic and serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. There's the exercise is increasing brain neurochemicals like norepinephrine, serotonin, and that leads to um, increased activity down descending analgesic pathways that go from the brain down to the spinal cord. And the more activity you have down those descending pathways, the less of that nociceptive input uh, from the periphery that is allowed to go upward to your brain to be felt as pain. So just uh, as we now know pretty clearly that tricyclics and uh, SNRIs are working uh, in that way, that probably is how exercise is working. That's probably in part how sleep is working uh, all by um, increasing activity down these descending um, analgesic pathways that are primarily noradrenergic and serotonergic. 
I want to take a a minute here to answer some listener questions, which uh, had to do with the diagnosis of fibromyalgia since we're kind of at that point in the talk. So uh, listener Maria from Philadelphia, she said, how do you differentiate fibromyalgia from other processes, other disease processes with similar symptoms? And I think the meaning kind of the question here is, should we be doing this uh, workup? I see a lot of these fibromyalgia patients coming in with just tons of labs, uh, the rheumatologist's favorite. I'm not saying the rheumatologist are ordering this. I'm saying I see people ordering ANAs and ESR, CRPs on all these folks. Everyone deserves that workup once. One of the things that can help guide the intensity of the workup is how long the person has had these symptoms. If, If you see Mrs. Jones who Um, started out as a teen by having painful menstrual periods and migraines and in her 20s she had low back pain and temporomandibular joint disorder and uh, and some irritable bowel and then um, you know after a divorce in her mid-30s the pain became so widespread that um, someone said it was fibromyalgia you don't really need to do much of a workup in that person because their history is so classic and there's not anything else that that's likely to be. Now, on the other hand, if someone comes in with subacute onset of diffuse myalgias and arthralgias and some fatigue, and and that's been present for three months and they don't have that long history of pain in other areas of their body, then the the work of of that latter person needs to be a lot more aggressive um, and certainly include things like a set rate, a CRP, perhaps an ANA and a rheumatoid factor. As a rheumatologist, I, I cringe because those are that you really should only order those if you suspect lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. They're not good screening tests. My favorite is the uh, one to forty speckled pattern pod that comes back positive, and and the patient somehow gets a hold of that lab and they tell everyone they have lupus, even though they have no other findings of lupus uh, or, or or whatever uh, rheumatologic disease they they tell people they have, but. Uh, I think another point that we should make when we're talking about these labs is that it is possible, right, to have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus and then go on to develop fibromyalgia? Absolutely. And and this is where we even more commonly will use the term centralized pain. We'll say that, you know, this person with rheumatoid arthritis has rheumatoid arthritis, has an autoimmune disease, but superimposed upon that they've centralized their pain. And even if you treat them with the you know, uh, TNF inhibitors and all the best biologics and and bring their inflammation down to normal, they'll still have widespread pain and fatigue and memory problems and sleep disturbances, and you're going to need to treat that like you would fibromyalgia. It, it seems as though that having ongoing nociceptive input like an autoimmune disease, like osteoarthritis, uh, like sickle cell disease, um, will... Uh, drive this process of central sensitization. And so that seems to be why we see it so commonly um, in in individuals that do have um, some peripheral nociceptive pain, whether it be low back pain, uh, again, rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, lupus, sickle cell disease, all of those conditions have fairly high rates of whether you want to call it fibromyalgia or call it centralized pain. And you need to recognize that or else you'll be misled into thinking that all of that pain is nociceptive pain and you'll overuse NSAIDs, opioids, surgical procedures. And uh, the other listener question that I wanted to ask you, uh, 
This is from Scotty from Ohio. He asked, is is skin biopsy for small fiber neuropathy beneficial or indicated? No. Uh, there are a couple neurologists that, that um, have published articles suggesting that there's a finding in the small nerves of the skin that has been called small fiber neuropathy, but most of us in the field don't think that has anything to do with the cause of fibromyalgia and don't think that these individuals should be getting skin biopsies. Uh, again, there's a couple people that would disagree with me, but the, but the overwhelming opinion in the fibromyalgia field and even the, more, the broader pain field um, is that th- those findings really have nothing to do with what's causing fibromyalgia. And uh, jumping back to when you are diagnosing, if, if you're old school and you want to use the tender point exam, is that still something that, that, that people are doing or that, that primary care doctors should even be messing with? I hope not. I, I do think if you want to, I think it's helpful to assess people for tenderness on exam. But if you're going to spend the time doing that on an exam, I would strongly recommend that what you do is, is um, press in, start on, by pressing on someone, the fingers of someone's hand and press in the interphalangeal region between the, the joints and then over the interphalangeal joints and then sort of march up your finger up into that person's forearm. And you can do that in about five or 10 seconds to start in the finger and just literally move up into the forearm and do it bilaterally. And mm-hmm. you get a really good um, sense of how tender that person is and how diffuse their tenderness is in way less time than counting 18 tender points. But the other thing I like about using that tenderness exam is that if you do only identify that someone is tender over the joints, then that's the person you should be a little more concerned. They could have an early lupus, early rheumatoid arthritis, um, you know, that they have some uh, inflammatory uh, process or autoimmune process that might be brewing. Whereas if you find that they're equally tender all the way or that the tenderness gets more pronounced as you get up into the muscles of the forearm, then that would be what you'd expect to see in someone that had centralized pain. And I've, in my own practice, I've largely stopped uh, referring these patients to rheumatology unless I'm on the fence about whether or not they have a uh, uh, some sort of rheumatologic condition. Is is that appropriate? Like if, if we do the widespread pain index and the symptom severity score, uh, they meet criteria based on that for us to kind of label this fibromyalgia and go on with treatment? Absolutely. There's not anywhere near enough rheumatologists in the country to take care of all the fibromyalgia. And, and to be fair, they're, they're not really trained in this. They're trained more in taking care of autoimmune diseases and that's what they're good at. And so there's some rheumatologists that, that will care for individuals with fibromyalgia. But I think what most would prefer to do is what you just said, is that if you have a question about whether there might be an underlying autoimmune disease or not, then absolutely send them to a rheumatologist for a one-time consult to make sure there's not an underlying autoimmune disease. Um, And sometimes the rheumatologist might give you some suggestions about management, but I I really think general internist primary care physicians are best at managing this problem because it presents in all areas of the body. It's not, uh, you know, once you figure out that that's what this person has, then, you know, the next time they present with 
discomfort or pain in another area of the body, you don't have to refer them to a subspecialist. You know what the problem is and, and you can really manage that a lot better centrally than by referring them to subspecialists who are in charge of the area of the body where they're experiencing pain. That's often a, a um, unsatisfying encounter for both the patient and that subspecialist. And you're, you're mentioning other areas of the body has me thinking, uh, I'm often seeing these patients, IBS, TMJ, migraine headaches, interstitial cystitis. Are these all part of the same disease process or is this something different? They're all the same. The, the NIH has recently coined a term, chronic overlapping pain conditions. And it really is now thought that the majority of people with conditions like interstitial cystitis, irritable bowel, uh, tension headache, fibromyalgia, uh, that this is really one problem, one brain pain amplification problem that just presents at different areas of the body at different uh, points in that person's life. Wow. I did not know that. At this point, uh, we've talked a lot about the diagnosis and sort of the background. I definitely want to move on to, to talking about the treatment of this. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure at this point we'll see if in post we're going to split this into two episodes or not. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. This will help others discover the wonderful show. You can contact us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or you can follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time... I've been Dr. Matthew Watto, hopefully next time with my co-host, Dr. Tony Sideri and Dr. Stuart Brigham. Thanks for listening.